Good morning to everybody. I want to talk with you today about something that is very, very significant. Um, I had a journalist come and see me one day at my office at Reasons to Believe. I have 5,000 books in my own library. Um, and so the, the journalist said to me, he said, have you read all these books? I said, well, not cover to cover, but I have read from all of them. He said to me, well, what, what is the overarching thing you've learned from all these books? Okay, very good, thanks. Um, I said to him, what I learned is that people need hope. You know, we've gone through, hopefully, we're seeing light and moving away from the pandemic. I read recently that a million Americans have died. Um, I also read on a website entitled uh, Mental Health in America that at the beginning of the pandemic, 20% of the American population were seeking some kind of psychological counseling to deal with their uh, mental health challenges. Uh, I hear now it's 40%. People need, people need hope. And as a Christian this morning, you have three things that a lot of people in the world don't have. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I want to talk with you about uh, a radical claim for Christianity. In philosophy, in science, we talk about dangerous ideas. What we mean by a dangerous idea is an idea that's so radical that it turns the paradigm upside down. Well, here is, uh, here is Christianity's dangerous idea. Not all men stay dead. Not all dead men stay dead. And uh, I, I love this quote by St. Augustine. He's my favorite Christian thinker outside the New Testament. Augustine kind of pitches it this way. He says, I was born into this life which leads to death, or should I say this death which leads to life? Well, if there's no God and the world is just here by accident or for, for some other reason, then we live in a world in which we're born into life and it's going to end in death. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if Christianity is indeed true, then we're born into a death that will lead to life. Now, I've always been interested in the question of death. I think because my father was a combat soldier in World War II. And when I was a young boy, I'd go to cemeteries with him. I think my dad had a certain sense of survivor guilt. He was part of an infantry division fighting in Europe. He was a machine gunner in a rifle company, and he did a lot of killing. And I think he saw many of his friends killed. And so I thought to myself, I'd like to be able to look death in the eye. And maybe if I could get familiar with it, maybe I wouldn't be afraid of it anymore. So I taught a course called called Perspectives on Death and Dying, a college out in the desert. I taught it for five years. And I'll tell you, it's hard to get college students to think they're ever going to die <laughs> until the final exam. <laughs> now, I want you to take a look at that cover of that book. That was, the, uh, that was the book that I used as a textbook in my class. It's called The Last Dance. And one of the stats that's in that book is that a lot of people think, now, now you've heard of the fallacy 
of wishful thinking, right? Some of the data in that book indicates that some people think if they don't think about death and don't acknowledge it, it may not happen. Now, now that's the fallacy of wishful thinking. Now, I want to talk with you a little bit before we get to the resurrection, before we talk about the person of Christ. And by the way, I saw that picture of Tim. I knew Tim before either one of us had gray hair. There is, uh, there is a worldview called naturalism. Atheism is not a worldview. Atheism is a denial of God's existence. The worldview that secular people hold is by and large called naturalism. And it simply means that all that exists is the material, physical, natural universe. Now, that's a, that's a pretty pessimistic worldview, and I'm going to give you details of that. But it was very interesting to me that not too long ago, Time Magazine had Google on the cover. And it raises the question, I mean, this is, uh, if this search engine can actually solve death, then boy, they are, they're really looking forward to something. But that's exactly what we are experiencing now. What we find is a movement called transhumanism. And it's made up of some of the brightest, most thoughtful secular people in the world. These are people that teach at Oxford University. They teach at some of the Ivy League schools in our country. And they believe that maybe by 2050, by using science and technology, that by 2050, we may be able to cure death. They think that they could even have an interface between the human mind and a computer that human enhancements will help people live longer. And so uh, on one of the websites, it says, making 90 the new 50. All right? Well, I'm not sure I accept a lot of those ideas, but it is certainly the idea that atheists need something to look forward to. Everybody needs a worldview. Everybody needs hope. Everybody needs an eschatology. But what I'm going to share with you today is that I don't believe naturalism really holds that purpose for us. Well, let's move ahead a little further here. Of course, uh, transhumanism has great confidence in reason and uh, in science. Uh, it has an extreme optimism of the emerging technologies that will expand consciousness and possibly even uh, eliminate death. And then they also affirm a worldview where human beings are, are right at the core. Uh, I actually think if you compare Ray Kurzweil to my old teacher, Walter Martin, Walter Martin is much more on target. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're born in America and you were a white male in 1900, your life expectancy, by the way, would be 47 years. Now, if you're born today and you happen to be a female, maybe you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you might double that. So it may be that with science and technology and medicine and doing all the things to eliminate waste and things like that, you may increase um, a lifespan, but you're not going to eliminate death. As Walter Martin said, the real death rate is one per person. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about some, some of the atheist worldview and I want to introduce you to some of the old atheists. When I was going to college in the late 70s and early 80s, I had to study what now I would call the old atheists. The new atheists are people like Richard Dawkins, 
Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Dan Dennett. And I can tell you, having read a lot of atheist literature, that the new atheists aren't nearly as thoughtful as the old atheists. Here's two old atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher who said, God is dead. And Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, who, uh, who said, we live in a meaningless universe and there's no exit. Here is the uh, old atheist. Nietzsche, by the way, was raised in a Christian home, raised by a Lutheran minister. Nietzsche used to say, uh, I'll never forget when I first heard Handel's Messiah. And Nietzsche would often say to the Christian people he knew he'd needle them, say, you know, I might believe in the Redeemer if you'd act a little more redeemed. What makes the old atheists insightful is they understood Christianity. I don't think the new atheists do. In fact, I think that we have a lot of people who are giving up the faith, and I'm not sure they've really, really seen the authentic faith. Okay, well, let's take a look at uh, what we have here is what I'm going to call the old school naturalism. Well, if there's no God, the natural world is all there is. Life's a fortunate accident. It merged from physics and chemistry. Uh, humankind evolved from lower primates and now stands atop the evolutionary ladder. How that happened, we don't know. The forces of a naturalistic evolution have produced a creature capable of reflection. And take a look at the, the naked ape. Human beings have evolved to a point where they are now reflective. They can they can appreciate what I would call the fragility and the brevity of life. And this is what we call the existential dilemma of life. Now, again, this idea of naturalism, it says that the grave is the final end of each and every person's collective life, existence, and consciousness. Um, I had two people contact me uh, I, have a, I have a blog that I write at Reasons to Believe. I had, I had a lady and a man contact me within a week. The man said to me, said, Ken, I suffer from constant depression and anxiety. And he says, the anxiety makes me want to doubt my faith and to think about killing myself. Then I had a lady contact me, and she says, I have, a, uh, I have an illness that has lots of pain, and it will lead to increasing uh, debilitation. And she says, I want to be a good example to my kids, but sometimes I just want to give up on everything. And I thought to myself, um, people need hope in life. People need to know that there is a God, and that God has come in the person of Christ, and that that God offers us hope and, and purpose and significance. Because without that, then we have a headstone. Now again, take a look at, uh, take a look at this pessimistic worldview if, if you can. Upon death, a person will never think again. You know, I, I've spent decades trying to think as clearly and carefully and critically as I possibly can. Is all of that going to end in death? Uh, never think again. Never experience again. Never see my wife's beautiful face again. Never to be able to touch and hold my children again. Never to love again. Only oblivion waits and nothing more. 
In fact, if there is no God and the physical universe is all there is, then I'm going to die. And I'm going to die soon, and I'm going to die alone, and I'm going to remain dead forever. When I drive up the 10 from work in the morning going to Reasons to Believe, there's forest lawn over there. Sometimes I think, how long will I be in that hole if there's no God? Well, for many of us, maybe our death is a couple decades away, right? We don't have to think about this. Maybe that book is right. You know, you don't think about death. But the reality is that all of us will die. And even if it's decades away, life goes very quickly. And there's one thing you have to do alone. In fact, you have to do two things alone, according to the great theologian Martin Luther. Martin Luther used to say there's two things you have to do all alone. You have to do your own believing, and you have to do your own dying. Well, without God, we'll remain dead forever. Now, here is uh, Stephen Davis. Davis, by the way, is a, is a distinguished Christian philosopher, teaches at uh, Claremont, just down the freeway. Uh, notice what he says. He says that human beings are the only animals who know that they must die, and thus the only animals who try to hide from themselves the fact that they must die. What does that say about us as human beings? Here's what Davis says. This is, what, this is why death frightens us. He says death is inevitable. It's mysterious. It must be faced alone. Couldn't we pay somebody to do it for us? <laughs> it separates us from our loved ones. It puts an end to our hopes and aims. Death ends in oblivion. Now, of course, you can project it further, right? I work with a, a number of scientists one of my colleagues, Dave Rogstad, worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he says, well, Ken, it's not just human beings are going to go extinct. If you give it enough time, maybe two billion years or so, the individual's going to die, humanity's going to collectively go extinct, all life on Earth goes extinct, and then ultimately, Earth and its solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, will collide with the Andromeda galaxy. And you can go a step further than that. Finally, the entire grand cosmos itself will inevitably grow lifeless and cold due to what we call a universal heat death. So who will have the last say? Well, if you're an atheist, entropy has the last say. Now, I have a bit of a commute in the morning when I drive to Reasons to Believe. I live in Riverside. And uh, I used to think that the 91 corona area was the real virus, but it's a, it's a tough commute to work. So I noticed that when I leave, I have hot coffee, and I can't drink hot coffee fast, so I'm kind of slow, and by the time I get to RTB, it's no longer warm. Well, that's the way the universe is going to be if there is no God. What do people need in life? They need hope. They need purpose. They mean meaning and significance. Now, let's talk about Christianity for a moment. Let's talk about what we celebrated last week. And by the way, it was intended in church history that every Sunday was Resurrection Day. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day. By the way, Sunday had no significance for, for a Jewish religion in the ancient world. There's only one thing that happened on Sunday of any significance. 
Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that changed the whole Christian experience. It even changed the very day of worship. Well, in the ancient church, when there were only Jews in the church, they had a creedal statement. A creed, of course, is this this very uh, clear, direct statement about what people believe. And so while this made it into 1 Corinthians 15, it actually began as an ancient creed. Christians would read creeds, recite creeds, and sing hymns. And some of those creeds and hymns made it into the New Testament, particularly in Paul and Peter's writings. Notice what the fourfold formula, the the primitive Christian kerygma, number one, Christ died. Probably the, the, the greatest death ever, the most influential death ever, the most publicly announced death ever. Jesus was crucified, crucified by the Romans, put to death under Pontius Pilate. Christ died. He was buried. He was placed in a tomb. Then he was raised, and then he appeared. Now, take a look at those two worldviews. If you're a naturalist, I like to say that atheism is a young, healthy man's faith. Because when you get a little bit older, and you start thinking about life and the challenges and the difficulties, and when you have uh, people who come to you and say, you know, Ken, um, I have a family member who suffers with depression and anxiety, and it's debilitating. I I think of uh, one philosopher who said that that life is, is filled with lots of inner pain. And that may be a way, by the way, of helping us to care and love for our neighbor, recognizing everybody struggles with these existential issues. Well, if there's no God, you're going to die soon, alone, and forever. But if Christ has died and then was buried, then was raised, and then appeared, and by the way, you could pencil in a number five, since he raised and appeared, so will you, and so will I. So what is, what is the most important message for anybody in the world to hear? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you need some motivation to share your faith with other people, you want to communicate them that the real existential issue of life is our death. But Christ has conquered death. Now, uh, skeptics, of course, say, you know, Christians, they are uh, they are the people who don't question enough, they're insufficient in their skepticism. We ought to question more, we ought to doubt more, we ought to be more suspicious and challenging. And they say, Christians don't do any of that. Well, let me introduce you to three individuals that I think engaged in that very thing. Thomas. Thomas is one of the 12. Thomas is not with the other disciples when Jesus appears to them. Thomas says, look, you know, I, I, I know I'm part of this, uh, this apostolic community, but I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger into the nail marks, unless I can put my hand into the side. What happens? Thomas goes from being a skeptic. You know what? It's not easy to stand up and say, I don't, I don't really believe this when everybody else does. That takes a lot of nerve. It takes a lot of skepticism. 
Thomas then sees the risen Lord, and he says what? He says in Greek, my Lord and my God. I had a Jehovah's Witness knock on the door one day. He asked for a passage about the deity of Christ. I said, well, what about Thomas? He says, Jesus is my Lord and my God. And the Jehovah's Witness says, well, he, he was just kind of nervous, and he just blurted out, oh, my Lord, oh, my God. I thought that was pretty quick. To, to be able to come up with something like that. But that's not what Jews say. When Jews call somebody Lord and God, they mean Yahweh Elohim. Thomas was sufficiently skeptical, right? How about James? James is my favorite. James is my favorite. James is the brother of Jesus. James, his whole life has been hurrying for Mary. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Now, Seriously now, um, I think a fair reading of the New Testament indicates that Mary, even with the extraordinary life she lived and even with the miracles that she saw, that at some point Mary and Jesus' siblings began to think there was something deeply wrong with Jesus. They went to take control over him. I think it's reasonable to even conclude that they thought maybe Jesus had a serious mental illness. I mean, why wouldn't they? It's a, it's a monotheistic Jewish culture. You, people don't go around saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. People don't allow other people to worship them. Jewish people don't say, I can forgive you of sins. It seems like, Jewish, it seems like Jesus' family is thinking, our, our son, our brother, he's disturbed. And can you imagine all the embarrassment that was with that? And then something happens where James goes from being the family skeptic to becoming the leader in the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And James not only wrote the epistle of James, but James was put to death, believing that his brother was now the son of God. I'll tell you, uh, I find it encouraging that Jesus had a bit of a dysfunctional family. Uh, that's helpful to me. How about Paul? How about Paul? Paul is a Jew. He's a rabbi. Some think if he had never become a Christian, he may have gone down as one of the great rabbis of the first century. He encounters this movement of the Nazarene, and he thinks it's a cult. These people are destroying Judaism. We got to eliminate this. And of course, uh, today we might say Saul was a jihadist. I got to put an end to this. And if it means persecution or even death, something happens to Paul that changes him. He has a vision of Christ. So it seems to me that when skeptics, and here is the granddaddy of all skeptics, this is David Hume. Uh, notice what David Hume has to say. Davis quoting Hume, he says that Hume's main complaint is that no purported miracle that he knows about has been supported by the testimony of a sufficient number of people of unquestioned good sense, education, learning, and integrity. Well, um, I think Thomas, James, and Paul fit that pretty well. These are not easy believism from these people. These are three people that went into it not believing it. 
and they came away willing to lay down their life for it. All three men came to believe in the resurrection after initially doubting it. Two of the central apostolic leaders of primitive Christianity, James and Paul, were converts from extreme skepticism and went down as martyrs of their faith. Now, I want to close my talk by bringing us back to this issue. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. You know, you, I always tell that to my kids. You know, you see people, it looks like they have, have everything. My two favorite athletes, Ted Williams, the great baseball player, Jerry West, the great basketball player. Those guys played sports like I could only dream to do. Money, fame, hall of fame. Then I discover they both write books late in life where they said we live tortured lives. Tortured lives. Existential angst, desperation, despair. One of my favorite thinkers is Pascal. He says, as men are not able to fight against death, misery, and ignorance, they have taken it into their heads in order to be happy, not to think about them at all. So the idea that Jesus truly rose from the dead is the most transformative idea on earth, and it tells us that not all dead men stay dead. It gives, uh, given the inevitability of death, this truth is the greatest news that mortal human beings could ever hope to hear. That motivates me to talk to other people. I know people have inner pain. People struggle with having a legitimate hope and purpose. This gives me uh, a challenge to keep talking. Now, as I close here, let me just tell you a little bit about Viktor Frankl. He was one of the great intellectual scholars of the 20th century. Unfortunately, he was from Austria, and he was a Jew, and he was a psychiatrist. So he and his family were captured by the Nazis and put into Dachau and Auschwitz. Um, Frankl said that because the inmates were being systematically starved and forced to do heavy labor, he said whenever they would give up hope, they'd fall over dead. They were living on hope, hope that the Allies would rescue them, hope that their spouse was still alive, down the, at another camp, uh, hope that God would, would say something to them. Viktor Frankl lives through all of this, develops a, a philosophy, a psychology called logotherapy. He says what people need most in life is hope. Well, there's a lot of death. And with the pandemic and things, we've gone through a tough time. But then there will be resurrection. Here's what uh, British physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, he says, for the religious believer, Christian theist, the last word lies not with death, but with God. I have some books on sale here. We have a table outside. I want to invite you to come and look through some of our materials. Um, and I want to encourage you today. You have three gifts from the Lord Almighty, faith, hope, and love. Thank you very much.